<laughs> Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And that's whatever type of company you work with and laugh. I think we have to have some fun along the way. Obviously, we do. I'm Michael Bull, your host of the world of commercial real estate. Thanks for joining us today. Remember, if you have any commercial real estate questions or if you have comments about the show, we do appreciate hearing from you. Our phone number is 888-612-SHOW. Our email is info at com. You can also connect with us through Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Google+. You can find them all at the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're going to focus on important lease issues in this cycle, or we could call it, oops, I should, I should have, have covered, covered that. that in the lease. <laughs> we were a little slow there. You want to do that again? <laughs> no, I, I love it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, people get all concerned and, and deeply involved in a sales contract sometimes that, that may last 60 or 90 days. And it's fairly straightforward, but, but a lease that controls their company or controls their property sometimes for many years sometimes gets signed without enough thought behind it. And commercial leases could be the most important documents you'll ever sign. Well, there might be one more important. What would that be? A <laughs> prenup? <laughs> okay. Easy, easy. Buddy. Easy, easy. Okay, all right. No comment. No comment. Well, if you're involved in your company's leases or you have anything to do with commercial real estate, including dealing with income properties, a deep understanding of leases is vitally important. Well, let's meet our guest. Uh, David Tenery is with us. He's a principal of the Office Properties and Development Group at Regent Partners. David has been involved in the development of more than 6 million square feet in the U.S. and Latin America. David also has led a class on commercial leases with Cornet for 24 years. David, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Also, please welcome John Neville. John is a partner with Arnold Golden Gregory. AGG is a full-service law firm with 160 attorneys with offices in Atlanta, Miami, and Washington, D.C. If you appreciate the Commercial Real Estate Show, AGG is one of the companies you can call and thank because they're sponsors, and we appreciate that. John's practice is focused on commercial real estate, and he has lots of hands-on experience with commercial lease issues. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Also, please welcome Phil Baugh with Baum Realty Group. Phil has successfully managed the strategic expansion for retail clients in hundreds of markets across the United States. Commercial leases have been the backbone of his business every day for at least 15 years. Phil, thanks for calling us from Chicago today. Thank you, Michael. Well, we appreciate uh, having you on. And guys, you know, commercial real estate uh, leases are an important and serious subject, but uh, <laughs> we'll have some fun with it, too. Uh, you know, we've only touched on the surface of the importance of lease document. Uh, lease can control a tenant's business and their use and cost for real estate for many years. And, John, if a tenant is renewing a lease or negotiating a new lease directly with the landlord or through the landlord's agent, who in this situation is representing the tenant's best interests? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that everybody involved on the tenant's team would be representing the tenant's interests. But, you know, I'm a sort of a big believer that at different phases, different people should be taking the lead. And so, you know, at the early stages, as the deal's being structured, you know, someone like Phil, a really good broker who knows the market, knows the concept, should be taking lead, I believe, um, along, of course, with a tenant whose money ultimately is at stake. Once that deal sheet gets signed and it goes to the lease stage, you know, it, it's really important, whether it's us or someone else, that I, I, an attorney who does this every day be hired. Because mm -hmm. like you said, it's a 20-year commitment, sometimes more. And, um, you know, if that contract isn't negotiated properly, 
um, there could be a lot of bad ramifications. You know, I guess in some cases, uh, medical tenants and other tenants, you see them working directly with the landlord or the landlord's agent, and they're not represented. Um, and uh, David and then, loves it when that happens. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, that could be a mistake. I mean, when you read about the some of the largest law firms in the country and and uh, companies that have their own real estate departments, they're still hiring tenant reps uh, like Phil, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think some of it is what, you know, uh, knowing what you don't know. And so it's always the best interest to have a group that can uh, that can bring their experience to the table and negotiate on your best interest. Right. And perhaps yeah. to bring just a better reality to it, uh, the, the, the fact is you're right. Landlords love it when tenants show up uh, without representation, and there's a good reason for that. We typically end up with a much better deal for the landlord and charge the tenant a whole lot more rent for <laughs> a period of time and operating expenses and TI and all those things that fall into a lease. But the reality for the corporate America side is, is that if you look at your real estate costs, it is typically one of the top three biggest items in your balance sheet year after year. And so my sense is you're not going to go negotiate any of those other three without right, proper representation and a good strategy, and certainly at least shouldn't be considered any different. That's right. And let's talk about the LOI, the letter of intent. In most markets, tenants and tenant reps use letters of intents or proposals to negotiate the major points of a lease prior to work on the actual lease document. Phil, how important is it for the tenant to include more than just the basic points in an LOI? Well, Michael, you know, if you were to negotiate a lease using just the basic points, that'd be like playing a football game with just a quarterback and a wide receiver. You know, you have a chance that you can score, but you're leaving yourself open to risks, linebacker size risks, and miss an opportunity to position yourself for success for your business. So we think it's really important to include a lot of different points in your negotiations right up front to protect your interests and avoid your costs. So there's, there's things like uh, really strong exclusive language with teeth in it that keeps your competitors out of the, the shopping center that you're going into, or maybe language that restricts what landlords can do with parking to ensure that your customers are always have enough parking uh, to come to your business. Or there's ways to avoid costs, like a lot of people are going into second-generation spaces, and HVAC could be a really big-ticket item. So we always push to have the landlord cover any repair or replacement on existing HVAC so the tenant's not open to some unplanned major cost down the road if that stuff should break. So there's a lot of things you got to get into that uh, negotiation right up front. The only thing I'd throw in there, and I agree with everything that Phil just said, is that um, – you can go overboard in a letter of intent and include legal things. And it, it's sort of dangerous sometimes when non-lawyers start drafting legal language. And, you know, in particular, I saw a letter of intent the other day that had a section, actually, one was on indemnity and one was on landlord default and remedies. And it looked like they had almost cut and pasted out of the landlord's form lease and put that into the letter of intent. You know, and there's really no need for that type of language to go in a letter of intent because, number one, the lawyers are going to renegotiate it anyway. Number two, the people reviewing it, that's just not what they're best trained to do. You know, and number three, it'll slow down your letter of intent because the longer that letter of intent is with non-legal things, the, the longer it can take to get done. But I do agree with the business points that Phil just pointed out. I would agree as well. I think the only th area we would differ, John, in some respects and, and is that while you don't want the LOI to turn into the lease itself, it is a critical tool on the front end for both the landlord and the tenant to be able to assess the other party's position on very key and critical issues mm -hmm. as an indemnity perhaps and as a landlord uh, default. And so in some respects, those at least ought to be covered because if I'm a landlord and I see a tenant coming at me with certain issues, I'd like to see covered and they're not willing to talk about that. 
I know I'm borrowing that argument somewhere down the road. So I'd like to know about that sooner than later. But the problem is that a lot of times the LOI stage, at least in, in my world, um, my client, my tenants won't get me involved. Yeah. So there's nothing, for, from my perspective, more frustrating than to get a letter of intent that's been you know, well negotiated by the landlord and the tenant thinks they've negotiated it well. But in reality, they don't even really understand what they just agreed to indemnify for, for instance. Yeah, and I love it when the landlord at the table will pull that letter of intent exactly. out of the lawyer and say, well, you agreed to this right here. This exactly. is a closed issue. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> right. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the business points, though, that sometimes get left out of an LOI should be covered and, uh, up front so that because uh, there's such major points in a lease. It's not just the rate and the terms and the escalation. I mean, there's a lot of important business points. And, you know, that's why we're talking about leases today. And what about, John, what about the uh, LOIs uh, being uh, unenforceable or, uh, you know, should you have strong language in an LOI that says that it's not enforceable? And also uh, tell us about uh, when you're sending a lease for comments should there be some strong language along with that lease for comments that's unsigned that that this is not enforceable until it's executed? You know, I think the first question yes is yes. The second answer to the second question is no. Um, a letter of intent needs to have language in it that says it's not enforceable. I think almost everyone does. Um, there are actually some cases out there across the country where people have inadvertently entered into leases or contracts that they thought were LOIs because non-enforceability language was was omitted. Um, so, you know, it's easy to put a sentence in there saying this is a non-binding agreement of the parties that's going to be used as a roadmap for negotiating a contract or a lease. You know, as far as the draft leases going back and forth, you know, until a contract is signed, it's not enforceable. So, um, you know, unlike the LOI, which is signed, and that's why you need a statement in there saying that it's not binding, you know, an unsigned contract that parties are negotiating back and forth in and of itself isn't binding. You know, it's sort of like also I don't like a provision that says if the lease isn't, you know, isn't completed in 30 days, the LOIs have no force and effect, um, it sort of flies against the concept that the LOI is really unenforceable anyway. The fact of the matter is, is that until pen is put to paper on a lease, you got no lease. Yeah, but at the same time, that you know, putting a time limit on an LOI, I think, is appropriate because at least it lets knows the parties know, look, we're planning to enter in a lease within 30 days. Attorneys, that example. Hate, attorneys hate those provisions. Oh, I know, but <laughs> especially as a broker, you know, you're like, look, we don't want to delay this. This needs to get done or not. And also, you know, if, if you're representing the uh, landlord in that case, you may get a better offer or you're the tenant, you may find a better space. Time kills deals and there needs to be a timeline to keep them online. But not only that, Jonathan pointed about, I mean, they made the point about rather cases all over the country where there have been issues related to LOI. I can think of a case in Houston whereby a landlord was sued because there was not an expiration date in LOI on a right of first refusal, and the tenant that had the right waited to, until the tenant occupied the space in front of them to go after the landlord, and that yeah. ended up in a multi-million dollar suit. Well, we have to take a quick break. We'll get more important commercial lease issues, or oops, I should have covered that <laughs> in the lease. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. 
If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate related subjects, check out our show podcast. We recently completed market update shows on every major property sector, and last week we produced a show on zoning for dollars. You can hear these shows while they're still available on iTunes and in the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're covering important lease issues in this cycle, or... Oops, Oops, I should have covered that that in the lease. (laughs) Okay. Well, my guests are David Tennery with Regent Partners, John Neville with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Phil Baugh with Baum Realty Group. Uh, Guys, in in this cycle, some tenants have had issues with their landlords being foreclosed on, and in some cases, finding the lender will not uh, be willing to honor their lease. Uh, David, can you share with us how an SNDA uh, can protect the tenant in this situation? Absolutely. I think I would say, in my opinion, that today in this environment we've seen now for the last three years and going forward, probably for the next two to three, as a lot of debt issues are resolved in upside down real estate, this SNDA is going to be one of the most critical components that council is going to help their tenants negotiate through. And this non-disturbance agreement, for example, is going to protect the tenant when a foreclosure occurs and or a friendly foreclosure or any kind of deed in lieu of or sale uh, against being kicked out of the building. And when you think about this, that most of the institutional type buyers today are looking at real estate assets, particularly during a distress period, are buying those at investment. They're not necessarily buying real estate. They're buying an investment vehicle, and they've got to get a return, and they're going to be coming through that investment vehicle looking for every opportunity to return they can. And if that means a tenant's paying a low rent because they've been smart enough to take advantage of a, of a low lease rate in the current environment, there's going to be a way that this that landlord's going to try to find to get that tenant out of there, rent that space to a higher paying tenant. So critical to have these things and have the protection of a non-disturbance agreement within the lease document. And John, they could also protect uh, the lender uh, in those situations well where the tenant then is therefore can't get out of the lease, right? That's right, because there, there are some um, cases and laws out there that say that you know in the event of a foreclosure, that le- without an SNDA, that lease as a matter of law has gone away. And um, even if the lender were to attempt to say, no, you know, tenant, we want you to stay, the tenant could, under some circumstances, say, well, you know, too bad our lease has been terminated as a matter of law. So, I mean, it does protect the, the, the lender as well. I, I would say that the only caveat from an owner's perspective is that some owners have signed loan documents um, that may go back four, five, six years where they agree with the lender in advance that the tenant is not under, let's say, 5,000 square feet, that no SNDA can be provided. And, and you know, I do both tenant and developer work and i'll tell you that when you're representing a developer sometimes it's frustrating trying to explain to a tenant that you just don't have the right as a developer to demand an snda but sometimes that's very true and i'd certainly request one though absolutely and and i think more lenders are understanding that it may be smart for them to to do an snda and take that time right indeed and we talked the opener conversation this morning with respect to letters of intent to me an SNDA provision and or commitment to have that is really a good thing to have in that initial letter of intent offer because you know again right away whether you've got an issue on the tenant or the landlord's side with a critical component. Fully agree. And, and as we're talking about distressed landlords, one of the other things to think about is that the tenants are looking at ways to go after distressed landlords to get great deals. And you can do that, but you need to protect yourself with things like if you're going to get a TI allowance, you need to have some clause in there that if that landlord goes bankrupt and they can't give their TI, then that TI can translate into free rent. 
and other things like self-help rights. So there's opportunities to take advantage of distressed landlords, and you need these clauses like SNDAs and TI components in there. You just have to structure your deal smartly, knowing what situation your landlord's in from the beginning. And, Phil, I think that's a good point. And, John, tell us a little bit more about self-help and set-off rights. Yeah, globally it means that if the landlord doesn't do what they're supposed to do, that the tenant can take care of the situation. Now, a lot of times you find yourself at the lease stage negotiating under what circumstances that can happen. And interestingly, you find yourself negotiating, okay, if the tenant does take care of the problem, does the tenant get to bill the landlord? Does the tenant get to offset against rent? Um, these are things that you know might seem logical to a tenant, might not seem logical to a developer. But at the end of the day, they have to be negotiated out, and it varies lease by lease, and often depending on the size of the project. It can vary depending on the size of the tenant. It can vary depending upon the lender again, because some loan documents absolutely prohibit any rights of offset. So, you know, my job, if I'm representing the tenant, is to figure out the most I can get within the confines of the pre-existing rules that may be in place by that lender. And I, and I hate to defend tenants as a landlord, but in this position <laughs> also, I would advance the fact that if you do indeed as a tenant take on certain responsibilities and rights for self-performance and self-help, make certain that you have properly indemnified yourself so that you don't end up, if there is a liability created by your work, assuming the liability that the landlord would have under their performance obligations under the lease to a third-party tenant, to a casualty event, et cetera. But to to Phil's point, though, you know, if the landlord doesn't have any money or or is financially struggling to make repairs, um, it's, it's logical for both sides, I think, to say when you reach to a certain point, whether it be an emergency repair or something that's taking too long, that the tenant can go ahead and take care of situations so things can move forward. It's almost a mitigation of damages concept. Right, and it's even more important if the tenant's spending a lot of money on that space or they're spending a lot of money to move into that space, and it's very important to them, right? And David, what are some of the areas where mistakes can be made related to the actual description of the rent in a lease? Uh, rent payment, there's, that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a mistake with anybody paying rent, <laughs> unless the mistake is enough paying enough. I think some of the critical issues are what we've seen happening is that look, when we're drafting a lease document, the landlord typically likes to draft, and that's because the drafting party typically has the first shot at the upper hand of positioning with respect to every issue in the lease. Good point. The lease itself is nothing more than a document that is going to assign risk related to the lease, whether it be operationally or financially. So rent, we often see, and in all of our leases, I'll tell you nationally, rent is a capital R. And included within that capital R are things like parking cost and are things like uh, extra hours HVAC and any other building, additional porter services, et cetera. And the reason I love capturing that a capital R is because if there's an increase in the rent, all the costs for those things can go up with that increase in the annual rent. And I also have the right to default a tenant. Uh, if I need to default them, or if a lender comes in behind me and wants to default them because they're not paying enough rent and they haven't paid the extra HVAC bill, or they haven't paid the parking cost, or they haven't paid for the extra day porter service hours, or coffee, or whatever those kind of things are. So really understanding uh, the, what is under the defined rent category and how that will work against your default provisions are just critical. And the key is to negotiate, if you're representing a tenant, to negotiate those things out of the capital R rent that you want out. I mean, you know, Phil can tell you, we've, we've worked on deals together, you know, we can spend weeks arguing about, for instance, what's a permissible operating expense and what isn't. Um, you know, that, that could be a whole separate show as to what you should and shouldn't include. But, you know, for instance, capital expenses can be ridiculously expensive and can make costs go up dramatically for a tenant, um, you know, and, and really mess up a budget, especially if you're working with a smaller tenant or a restaurant or something like that. We'll fight aggressively to exclude capital expenses. Um, from operating expenses, but you know, if, frankly, you know, if, if they wind up being included, that is a part of the rent, and if they're not paid, 
then the tenant's in trouble, even if their operating expenses double from one year to the next. So it goes back to the point of why you need an experienced professional like you, Michael, or like Phil, to negotiate the deal on the front end and, and then hopefully get a lawyer involved to, to fix the language before the lease is signed. Fix what we broke to start with. Pardon? <laughs> fix what we broke when we did the LOI. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> not you or Phil. Not you or Phil. <laughs> Okay. All right. We're going to take a short break. Uh, We'll get more commercial lease issues for you in just a moment. If you appreciate the show, reach out and thank our sponsors. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com and Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like more great commercial real estate information, subscribe to the show blog at commercialrealestateshow.com. And follow the show on any of the social media sites, including Twitter. Our Twitter usernames are at CRE Show and at Bull Realty. Well, today we're covering important lease issues in this cycle, or... Oops, Oops, I should should have covered that that in the lease. Okay. My guests are David Tennery with Regent Partners, John Neville with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Phil Baugh with Bomb Realty. Let's talk about some other ways to control cost for tenants. Uh, Phil, let's start with you. If you're working for a retail tenant, what are some ways you might control CAM, the common area maintenance costs, for your tenants? Well, Michael, you know, CAM unchecked can be like a black hole that just sucks profit out of your business. I mean, the first thing that you need to do is to make sure that it's being calculated correctly. So you want to make sure that your your pro rata share of the CAM is based on the leasable, gross leasable area in the building, not the leased. Because if a tenant moves out, then you're going to be increasing your CAM cost and paying for that unoccupied space. Um, the other component of it is that let's say you're in a multi-tenant building with retail on the first floor and office or residential above. You want to make sure that your component of CAM is based on the retail portion of the building and you're not paying CAM on the uh, janitorial cost to clean the office space above. Then you've got what I call kind of the no-cousin clause. and I, I like to put in some clauses there where you know, you make, make sure the landlord is charging CAM rates based on commercially reasonable and competitive rates, so they can't just go out and hire a relative and pay them some astronomical fee to provide security. Well, be careful. Like we're, we're doing the show in the South, you know. We have cousins everywhere. Uh, John, you have Well, some no, good? I mean, I, I had mentioned before the break that, I mean, to me, my biggest pet peeve by far is ca- our capital expenses, if I'm representing a tenant. And the logic of that is this. You know, the landlord is charging rents to rent a space out, whether it be office, retail, what have you. Um, if the landlord didn't have an asset, it couldn't be collecting any rents. So the fact of the matter is that capital expenses are those expenses that landlord has to incur in order to have something to rent as compared to the ongoing maintenance and operation of, of, of that asset. And so, you know, I, I've, I've yet to hear a good argument as to why that logic is wrong, because at the end of the day, the landlord has to have an asset. And the thing about capital expenses is that these are the biggest ticket items that possibly could be passed through to a tenant. I mean, I have seen 
leases that we did not negotiate, but that had CapEx um, fully included. And, um, you know, if, if it's left in there on range, I mean, it can double a, um, a, a tenant's expense in a given year, sometimes even having the operating expenses be as high as the negotiated rent. Yeah. That can put somebody out of business. So, you know, it's really important, whether it be the broker or whether it be the, the tenant lawyer, to negotiate out capital expenses. And, and again, I think the logic is really sound why they should not be included. Well, there's some good points to that. And I want to move on to office leases. Uh, David, what are some ways tenants uh, like to try to control their expenses and exposure to rising costs? They send a team of lawyers to the table that are trying to take your operating expense rights away. Wow. <laughs> That's how they do it. In, in all seriousness, I think they're, uh, what we see more and more is a request for cap on the level of increase in operating expenses. And typically, the middle of the, over the last 10 years seems to be that with respect to controllable expenses, a reasonable cap is appropriate. Uh, but some things aren't controllable. For example, who knows what's going to happen to the tax base in any given organ in any given area of the country? And so you, those are the kind of things you want to push aside. I absolutely think John makes a great point that there ought to be a no cousin. Or I think it was Phil that said it a no cousin clause. Uh, and I'll take credit all, for it. Though. That's okay. okay. All right, great. <laughs> and, and all of those all those expenses certainly should be documented properly, and the tenant ought to have the right to audit those things and understand what's there. But keep in mind, guys. Those are expenses. It's not profit. It's a common area maintenance cost, and somewhere they're going to be paid. With respect to the capital item, I think when you look at it, you're right. That, that Those costs typically are planned by a landlord, and it's really only the surprises that a landlord ought to be at the table talking about with respect to capital expense pass-throughs to tenants. And even in those surprises, if a tenant has five years left on the lease and it's a 20-year life cycle of the item, the negotiated point ought to be that the tenant is only going to pay a pro rata share of the time that they are in the space and uh, not certainly be slapped with a capital expense that's made day one that they're going to pay on the tenant's going to double their rent, et cetera, as you suggest, as a result of enjoying that for a very short period of time. And, David, are you seeing a lot of office leases go from gross to a more of a net setup now? Yes, and that's really more driven by the fact that commercial real estate of any size has really moved in the last 10 or 12 years from Main Street business to a Wall Street business. And so you're seeing the need for true measurable income, clean, benchmark measurable income on the net operating bottom line when assets are being financed or sold. And so really the purest way to do that is through a net lease uh, without the base operating expense and all those kind of things. And so we're seeing more and more of that trend, and that will continue. So it's going to be more involved for uh, tenant reps in the office market to get involved more in the CAM and understand that and protect their tenants in those situations. Well, let's look quickly at personal and corporate guarantees. Landlords want them. Tenants don't want them. John, uh, start us out here. What are some other options to work this out in a lease? I mean, other than just having the tenant's principal say no. <laughs> you, um, you know, we, we recently, we, we've encountered this a lot. And um, an option that if the tenant or if the tenant's principals has some decent collateral is to offer posting a letter of credit. Um, you know, we, we just worked out a deal recently where the landlord started wanting a full-term guarantee. But because of the um, attractiveness of having a letter of credit and it being easily accessible you know, funds to the landlord, we got a um, one-year letter of credit negotiated, you know, in, in the same deal where the landlord wanted a full guarantee. It worked for the landlord, it worked for the, for the tenant, and um, most importantly, the tenant's long-term contingent liabilities were limited. All right, we're going to have some more tips for you on important lease issues. I'm Michael Bull, and you're listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. 
and by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some great shows coming up, including a show next week where we'll get the latest from the national leaders of ICSC, BOMA, CCIM, and CREW. If you'd like a once-a-week email announcing the show topic, you're invited to sign up at CommercialRealEstateShow.com. And if you're having a drinking show on website mentions, uh, you're going to need a designated driver here, I tell you. Well, today we're covering important lease issues in this cycle, or... Oops. Oops. I should have included that in the lease. lease. All right. We're getting better. Uh, that's right. My guests are David Tennery with Regent Partners, John Neville with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Phil Baugh with Bomb Realty Group. Uh, John, what are some of the basics of properly executed leases for various entities? Do corporations, for example, require two officers and a, and a corporate resolution? What, what's required there? It'll vary state by state. I will tell you that at the end of the day, a lease is generally enforceable with a signature of the organization. Now, that said... Um, there's a couple things to consider. Number one, if there's any power of attorney clauses in that lease, like for it to execute estoppels if they're not done timely or SNDA, you do need, like for instance in Georgia, where, where I practice, you need an independent witness and a notary to make any power of attorney enforceable. So you need that. Now, there will also there will be a representation in the lease that says that if Michael Bull is signing on behalf of um, ABC Company LLC, the representation will say that Michael Bull is personally representing that he has authority to you know, enter into this lease when he signs for ABC Company. Okay, if so you my, don't, you're in trouble. Okay, so my corporation can't say, nah, nah, there wasn't two officers, there wasn't a seal. You just had one no. officer sign that. There was no corporate resolution. That, that won't get him out. Your corporation may be able to say it, but guess what? Michael Bull suddenly is personally liable under that lease. So I think you better make sure that um, that's not the case. Ooh, okay. And David, do you, what do you <laughs> see there from the landlord side? Well, for the various reasons that John's pointed out, we require an authorization uh, mm-hmm. of two signatures, a signatory, a witness, and always, always a notary on the lease. But at the end of the day, too, let me point out that if you've been operating under a lease for two years and for a company to come back and say, oh, we didn't authorize this two years ago, not only is that argument going to lose, some law firm's going to get a windfall because their attorney's fees are going to be paid by the other side. Okay. Just anecdotally, i tell you, teaching, as you mentioned, these classes for corn at the last 24 years, we had a student from a corporate America one time stand up when we were talking about this issue of parties to lease and who signs and why and say in front of a class of about 36 students, well, my company intentionally has somebody sign the lease that's not necessarily authorized in case we need to get out later. <laughs> wow. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk about the proper execution of a lease amendment. For example, what if a lease has a personal guarantee and then a subsequent uh, lease amendment is executed by the landlord and the tenant, but the guarantor does not sign the lease amendment? Can that jeopardize the enforceability of the guarantee, John? Great question. The answer is technically no, practically yes. And the reason I say technically no is that the guarantee almost always, and it varies depending on what the guarantee says, but it almost always says that the guarantee is not impacted by any modification, restructuring, renegotiation, concession. I can give you a list of a bunch of verbs right now (laughs) that the guarantee is not impacted. Okay. And that language in most states and in most cases has been upheld because it's been challenged a lot lately. However, without getting that guarantor to sign up, okay, on your amendment, the owner is opening the door and for that matter, the other partners of the tenant, if you've got a four-partner tenant entity and three partners sign and one doesn't, 
the other three partners are opening the door for that guarantor, that non-signing guarantor to claim that, hey, you, you modified my guarantee, therefore I'm not liable. Because it's important for the listeners to know that, let's say a guarantee doesn't have that modification language that I'm talking about, and it's just a simple one-paragraph guarantee. The basic law is, is that if the underlying obligations of the guarantor change, the guarantee goes away. That's why you have all those disclaimers. But at the end of the day, you know, a guarantor may know just enough to be dangerous, and they may make that argument. And then the next thing you know, you're, pay, you're paying attorneys and dealing with a, a guarantor trying to get out of a document that's probably enforceable, but nonetheless, it's become a thorn in your side. Well, I know if I guaranteed a lease and, and the tenant uh, exercised an option to, or just did a renewal, did an amendment, and put some more term on that lease, I think I would have an argument that, wait, I didn't agree to that extended term. I agreed to that initial term. And if you have a one-paragraph guarantee, that's true. But if 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 the guarantee you signed said that you agree to any amendments, extensions, modifications, increases in liability, then then you're on the hook. Okay. Uh, What are some of the issues you run into related to options to renew leases and expansion rights, uh, Dave? Well, it's become more and more a problem, and I think as we as we begin to look at the slow but sure growth of the economy again and some job becoming able to happen, we're at a point now where tenants that have negotiated leases in the last three years have just scratched down and taken the nominal amount of space they absolutely have to have to operate efficiently. And so that against the reality of the fact that we'll see no meaningful new development of any size in terms of speculative development across the country for the next three to five years means that we're going to hit a window shortly where tenants that need to expand are simply not going to have the capacity to expand once the excess space or absorption has occurred that needs to occur and is occurring in many markets, particularly in the southeast and southwest, more rapidly than anyone would have perhaps anticipated. And so those options are going to be critical. The the tenants, bottom line is, tenants want them, landlords hate them. We call them according provisions. You can't predict your income. You can't predict your value. It's just way too burdensome for a landlord to have a series of ridiculous contraction and expansion options in a lease document. One important point as far as option rights go, you know, you see a lot of deals that come, at least to me, that have fair market rent as being the option, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and it says no more. And then you get a draft lease that says lease for the op- rents for the option shall be at fair market rent. Um, in many states, including Georgia, um, fair market rent, nothing more than that, is unenforceable as a matter of law. You've got to have a mechanism as to how you determine fair market rent, even if it's simply... Fair market rent shall be the fair market rent that landlord determines in its sole discretion. That's enforceable. That's but, just, but just to say fair market rent is unenforceable. That's not much of a renewal option. It's not, but it, at all. <laughs> it's but, a perfect I, renewal option. Exactly. <laughs> Listen, in all seriousness, do, do you want, if, you, if you're selling widgets or you're selling cars, do you want somebody to cap automatically the value that you're going to be able to get for your asset at the end of the day? No, the market ought to determine in a free market environment what kind of rents you ought to get there for it ought to be market-based with not some arbitrary cap or some ridiculous uh, approach to trying to value Arbitrary and animal. ridiculous. I love it. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to have more important lease issues after a quick break. If you appreciate the show, reach out to us and say hello. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com.
Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I have something special for you. When do you feel the best about yourself? When you're helping someone in need, right? Well, check out Andy's Army. A commercial agent's daughter experienced some brain injuries. His daughter, their family, and others in their same position could use our help. The website is Andy's, A-N-D-E-E-S, and then Army.com. Or give me a call at 888-612-SHOW to see how you can help. Well, today we're covering important lease issues in this cycle, or oops, Oops, I I should have covered covered that in the lease. lease. (laughs) Okay. My guests are David Tennery with Regent Partners, John Neville with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Phil Baugh with Baum Realty Group. A few years back, I was representing a tenant. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You you represented a tenant? Yes, I did. You can believe that. I thought you were just a host of the show. (laughs) No, large enough tenant, I will lead the charge myself. Of course, our company represents all size tenants. But yeah, on a larger tenant, I'm right there leading the charge. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. That's okay. Well, I was representing a tenant. We negotiated a sublease, and the original tenant was not of superior strength. And I was concerned that the original tenant might default. Uh, So I included a contingency that the original landlord signed a recognition agreement where the original landlord agreed to honor the sublease if the original tenant defaulted. And, John, can you share the use of recognition agreements with our listeners? And bottom line, if you're doing a sublease, and especially if you're representing that subtenant, make sure you have a direct relationship with the master landlord. Too many things can go bad. What people don't realize is that in a sublease setting, really you don't even have a contractual relationship if you're a subtenant with the, with the ultimate owner. You know, everything has to flow back through that, that sublandlord. So you, know, you need a direct recognition agreement. Um, you need to get some other... review done also of the master lease because ultimately everything in your sublease is going to be governed by what's in the master lease anyway. Right. And if that original tenant fails, your sublease could have no... It does go away. There's no could. There's no could. It it does. And let's talk about co-tenancy agreements where the tenant has some rights to a rent reduction or to cancel the lease if an anchor tenant goes dark. Uh, Phil, uh, what types of issues do you see today regarding co-tenancy? Well, Michael, this is a very hot issue because a lot of people have gotten burned lately with all the retailers that have been closing due to the economy. Um, and it's going to be a lot of contentious back and forth negotiating with the landlord. So I, what we think is most important is to really do your research. Figure out which one of the tenants you think is going to be most important to the vibrancy of your business. And then understand what's going on with that tenant. How much term do they have left in their lease? Do they have any options to renew? What kind of sales volumes do they have? You know, has there been any rumors of them moving? And then using that in your negotiations with the landlord and really focusing, picking your battles on which one you need to go with. Um, if all else fails, what we found sometimes you can do is instead of tying it to a particular tenant, you can tie this to occupancy levels in the property. And if occupancy levels drop below a certain amount, then those kicker clauses of reduction in rent or option to terminate gets out. So the, those are some strategies we've taken that, that have worked with some of our clients. I guess you could also tie in your own sales, right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, our fun has to end here soon, but I'd like you guys to uh, leave us with a quick quick tip for a tenant or a landlord or lender regarding leases, uh, Dave? I would say my best counsel would be never, ever sign a lease without absolutely knowing at the letter of intent stage who your landlord is. And I don't mean just 3345 Piedmont Road, LLC, Inc. I mean understanding who the parties are behind it and making certain that you understand the financial structure the debt structure and everything else behind a risk you're about to sign up for for the next five to 20 years. Good point. John? I would say to recognize that the lease is basically in many ways a glorified insurance policy. You know, at the end of the day, you're not going to pull your lease out and look at it unless there's a problem. And then both sides, owner, tenant, even lender, you know, will will then look to see if that lease has covered them for the situation that's arisen. Because it's a glorified insurance policy, it is absolutely worth 
paying somebody to go through that document, identify the risks, and listen, at a minimum, make sure you understand them. Even if they can't be negotiated and you're going to do the deal without any changes, you know, at least understand what is in that lease or that insurance policy, so to speak. So you know what you're getting into, and when you have to pull it out later, you're not surprised. That's a good tip. Well, David, John, Phil, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. If you'd like more information on commercial lease issues, the contact information for everyone on the show today is available at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, can you join us next week? Well, I hope so. We're talking to the national leaders of ICSC, BOMA, CCIM, and crew. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com.